I mean, it, it is almost damn near impossible to say no. I, I mean, if you can imagine the most overwhelming feeling or urge or obsession, you know, and multiply that by 10, that's what it's like to be a drug addict on a daily basis. Welcome to Strength Through Compassion Podcast. What's good, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Strength Through Compassion Podcast. I'm your host, JP Singer, and this is the show where we talk about self-growth, plant-based living, and sharing the message of love, compassion, and peace for all beings. Welcome back to the show, guys. If you're a first-time listener, you can leave me a rating and review on iTunes. If you're an Apple user, just go to the show notes and click the link that says leave a review here. And if you are a returning listener, thank you so much if you've done that already. And if you haven't, go ahead and do that as well. It takes about 20 seconds. Helps me out a ton. Hope you guys are having an awesome week so far. I'm really, really excited to bring you this episode today. I have a super special guest on. He happens to be my brother and he has an amazing story to share. And I think that you guys are really going to enjoy it. And, you know, maybe some of you will relate to it and maybe some of you won't, but I think either way you will still get some inspiration out of his story and just understand the hardship he's had to go through and how he's transformed as a human being. But before we get into the episode today, I want to let you know that today's show is brought to you by VCoco, an online vegan cooking school that takes you around the world to learn from native professional chefs. From raw food to Thai, Italian, and cheese making, and plenty more, VCoco is an online hub with access to more than 200 lectures, downloadable course books, and a wealth of culinary knowledge, all from the comfort of your own home. Not to mention they are always updating with new courses from countries around the world to truly give you a diverse arsenal of tools to take your culinary game to the next level. Trust me guys, when I first went vegan, I had no idea what I was doing and I had to learn the hard way over years of practice. Don't make the same mistake that I did. VCoco takes the guessing game out of vegan cooking and teaches you not only the how, but the why for international culinary techniques from native chefs. I personally recommend joining the monthly membership at only $25 a month. You get access to all the courses, a private Facebook group, a course certificate, and one new course a month. Plus you can try it out for 14 days free and cancel anytime. If you guys want to take your vegan cooking to the next level, go to vcoco.com slash Jake. That is all lowercase V-E-E-C-O-C-O.com slash Jake. Or you can use my code Jake10 at checkout for an extra 10% off. And I also have a link to that in the show notes below. All right, guys, enough of the housekeeping. I kind of want to just dive right into this episode. My brother is a former drug addict and he struggled with a heroin addiction for multiple years. And this is also just stemming from kind of a hard childhood, um, just some mental illness and just a lot of stuff that he went through. And yeah, he's been through some shit. So again, I think you guys are going to be inspired by the story, whether you relate to it or not. And hopefully it does help you out in some way to learn something. So I'm going to get right into it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with my brother, Dustin Singer, and I will see you guys on the other side. Dustin Singer, aka my brother, welcome to the show. It's your uh, first podcast experience. It is. Yeah, you've never done anything like this, have you? Uh, well, I've spoken before, but not on a podcast. Yeah, so this is a little bit easier, I feel like, because it's just like us having a conversation and not speaking in front of a a big crowd. I feel like I don't know. I I definitely get more nervous speaking in front of a crowd. What do you think? Um, it, it was, it was scary a little bit the first couple of times, but I've done it so many times. I kind of got used to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did my first public speech back in September, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it went good. It went good. So, well, thanks for being on the show. Um, you know, I told the listeners one reason why I wanted to switch the name from the Vegan Manly Man podcast to Strength Through Compassion podcast is to have a more wide variety of guests and not necessarily always talk about vegan stuff. So, you know, you have an incredible story of addiction and then recovery and depression and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you've certainly lived a challenging life. And so I want to have you on to talk about that and hopefully inspire some people who are either going through the same thing or know somebody who is. So, um, yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's take it back. Obviously, I know your story um, and I didn't write any notes for the show because I feel like I know you so well that I'd just be able to ask questions. But uh, as far back as I can remember, obviously, when we were little kids, you know, I, I didn't see anything. But maybe at the age of 12, 13, 14 is when life really started to get hard for you um, mentally. Would you say that's a, that's the time that everything started to kind of go maybe a little bit downhill? I would say from a, um, you know, consequence standpoint and uh, like an external uh, behavior standpoint, that's when everything started to go bad for me. But I think internally, you know, in hindsight, um, I kind of knew that I felt maybe a little bit different than most people did, even way younger than that, maybe just in, you know, first, second grade. Wow. Like what, what ways do you think that you felt different from other people? Um, you know, just feeling kind of like a, a misfit or a loner or, um, you know, I, I think the one thing I struggle with a lot is that, um, my thinking, um, just as far as from a, you know, mental aspect was maybe a little bit higher level than some of my peers. So it was kind of hard to, and I, I don't necessarily mean from a bragging, like intellectual <laughs> standpoint or anything. Say, I'm smarter than everyone else. Here you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, just thinking about maybe things that I shouldn't have been thinking about, you know, at, at an age that young, you're supposed to be like an innocent kid and, um, you know, being too involved in thinking how life works, uh, I mm. think can be a bad thing. Yeah. At a young age. Absolutely. Uh, that's something I struggle with now. Um, just trying to understand the point of life. Um, do, I mean, is that something you still think about just for me? And I'm just curious since we are brothers, like, for me on a daily basis, I'm constantly asking the question, like, what is the purpose of all this? And, and why is it here? Why is there suffering? And like, wh- what do we get out of this? Um, you know, I did for a long time, you know, and, and that's kind of what I was just referring to. And I think that caused me a lot of internal suffering, but, um, you know, I, I think that at this point in my life and just through the things that I've been through, you know, I've kind of just surrendered to the fact that life is what it is. And, you're kind of dealt the cards you're dealt and, and other people are dealt the cards that they're dealt too. And, um, you know, the one thing that I've definitely learned is that I only have control over my own actions and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard. Like, man, like I go on Facebook and just, uh, I see some of the shit I see on there just of like politics and this and that. And like, like sometimes I feel like, there's all this noise going on in this like cage or something. And I'm just like looking from the outside, like, what are you guys all doing? And it's like, it's sometimes it's hard for me to just surrender that it is the way it is because I do have those thoughts. Um, and, and maybe I'm lucky in the way that for whatever reason, I just chose to, to go a different route with my actions corresponding to those thoughts. Whereas you maybe took actions to kind of subdue or, or numb 
those thoughts, if I'm correct. Like, I mean, you turn to drugs to kind of like get those thoughts out of your head. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so you felt different when you're, when you're a young kid, you know, first, second grade, that's pretty early to start. And then the earliest, like the earliest thing that I can remember of just your struggle and your journey, um, is when you were 14. Um, so you were in eighth grade, I was in sixth grade and had you, did you feel like you were dealing with depression at that point in your life? Um, uh, yeah, you know, I was sure diagnosed with it. That's for sure. Um, uh, you know, I think depression maybe can have different meanings for different people. Um, you know, of course I was sad, um, suicidal, um, you know, feeling less than feeling alone. So if you, I guess if you want to classify that as depression, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think other people experience it different ways, but, um, you know, for sure that was the, the lead kind of into, uh, finding the fix, which turned into drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, I mean, at 14, you did try to take your own life and, um, you know, for me, that was when I realized that, oh shit, this is really something serious, but, I still don't think that um, I still don't think that I understood like just how serious it was because at that point in life I hadn't experienced death, and so like I didn't I didn't realize <clears throat> what like how what's the word I'm trying to look for here I didn't I didn't realize how impactful that was um, for you doing that 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 you were in a place so low that that felt like that was the way out, um, you know, <laughs> like. What was good? What was if you can remember? What was what was going through your head at the time that that you came to that conclusion as your solution? Oh, I mean, I can honestly say at this point that I think it was more about attention than actually, you know, wanting to end it. Um, at least from my recollection, you know, maybe maybe in that moment in that specific time, it felt like that that was the solution, but um, you know, in hindsight and, and kind of working through some things that, you know, I really felt like that I was just kind of an attention seeking method and that, you know, surely that my, you know, my internal thoughts, um, had led to me doing that or, or attempting to do that, you know, I should say, but, um, you know, I guess it was no different than finding any other outlet to, to try to, to try to numb the pain because, you know, it started off with alcohol. I think at maybe age 12, you know, and then, as you know, I was on a bunch of psychotic medication and things like that. And, um, you know, I think I was on the psych meds before I actually tried a drug. Wow. So that, that was my first drug, you know, was, was psych meds. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure that played something into it. You know, I don't, I don't know what that did to the levels in my brain or, you, you know, whatever. But um, that obviously wasn't the right solution. Yeah. Yeah. So so you say it was, you know, more attention seeking. What were you what were you trying to gain out of that? Were you just, was that more like a, was it a cry for help and, and not necessarily saying, Hey, I'm, I really want to end my life, but like something's off, you know, wh- wh- whose attention were you, tr- were you trying to seek? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it really, it really is hard to say. Um, I just knew that, you know, what I was doing wasn't working and I, you know, I, I was trying to look for something else. Yeah. You know, I think at, at, at 14 and you have a better memory than me because I didn't remember that's exactly what age that happened. But, um, 
you know, I, I had already been abusing alcohol and the psych meds for, I, I believe, at least a year by, by at that point. Wow. So what was the transition? Because, you know, after that um, was high school. And I feel like that's really when you started to get into more trouble. Um, I know you've, you've talked about it before, about certain substances that were gateways for you. Um, alcohol at 12. And then what we say was the next thing, maybe smoking some weed or, well, obviously the psych meds, but. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure I smoking some weed. And in fact, I remember, you know, this going back to the old cell phones where you took the battery out of them and <laughs> I'm like storing weed hiding inside weed of in my, yeah, <laughs> hiding weed inside of my cell phone. So, um, you know, weed was never really my thing, but again, you know, it was one of those things where, um, Someone I, I don't want to say looked up to, but someone that I wanted to be a, you know, fit in with was smoking weed. And, and do you want to smoke weed? Well, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cause at that point in time, his life looked attractive to me. Yeah. You know, one of my peers, his, his life looked attractive to me and I saw what he was doing. So I, I wanted to do it. Um, but, but really, I mean, I think what really set things off, I can remember it specifically when I got my wisdom teeth out. I want to say maybe I was 15, 14 or 15. And, um, you know, I got prescribed painkillers. Yeah. And I remember, I remember making, I, I, I remember, I specifically remember Googling what dry socket was because I remember the mm. surgeon mentioning it. Yeah. So I told mom that I, I thought I had dry socket and that, that I needed a whole entire another bottle of prescription. And really, you know, I just wanted to get high. Yeah. But that, that was my first introduction to, uh, to the end, we'll say. It's crazy how addictive opiates are for maybe who any anyone who hasn't ever experienced them. Um, and and I'm lucky in the sense that you know throughout high school, I mean, there were times where like you would have someone be like, "Oh, I want to try this" or or whatever. But you know, un unsuspecting people who are just you know living their day to day lives who maybe get their back hurt or something like you know when I was a senior and I was playing lacrosse, I tore my AC joint. I got prescribed uh, Vicodin or something and my pain had subsided. But once that bottle was done, I wanted more, you know, what, what was that high? Like it, I mean, I, I obviously have my experience, but you're it's something that you were more invested in. Like, like what did that do for you that, that made it so appealing that, that made you want to continue and lead you to, you know, more hard stuff eventually. Uh, you know, I think the, the thing that separates, uh, we'll say, addicts and alcoholics from non-addicts and alcoholics is that, you know, obviously all um, mood and mind-altering chemicals have some type of dependency factor to them. So there's the physical dependency and there's the mental dependency, or, or as I like to call it, the spiritual dependency. And I think that the difference between people that are addicted and not addicted is that non-addicted people get hooked on the physical aspect of it, um, which is... I don't want to say easy because certain drugs are very hard to get off of physically, but it's easier than from a mental or spiritual aspect. And what I mean by that is that the addicted person or the alcoholic person, you know, not only do they have the physical dependency, but because whatever's going on inside of our brains is actually the root of the problem. You know, the drugs and alcohol are not the problem because, um, and I'm going off subject here for a second, but there's plenty of people that I've met that have, put down the drugs and alcohol and are still the same person. 
Yeah. And they normally don't stay that way. They normally end up going back to the drugs and alcohol. But, you know, for someone like myself, you know, I consider myself to be spiritually dependent or mentally dependent on the drugs and alcohol to make me feel a certain way because that's what got me out of my own skin. Mm. And I, I needed that feeling constantly. Yeah. So that relates back to when you were a kid having these these thoughts that, you know, these other kids weren't having and finally finding something that made you feel at peace or, or feel like you had a place here. Sure. Sure. I think one of the biggest problems in, you know, the treatment for drugs and alcohol is that people want to, you know, throw someone in a rehab and, and give them a bunch of, you know, this tool book or handbook or, you know, whatever, and get them off the drugs and alcohol. And okay, now we're good. But, you know, unfortunately it just doesn't work that way. And, and, and really, um, you have to substitute the drugs and alcohol for something. And, you know, in my case, that was a 12 step program. Um, for other people in the world, you know, there's, you know, maybe church works. Um, maybe there are some things that, that work, right? You know, I know for me and 99% of my peers, though, it, you know, it was a 12-step program. Yeah. So that's the main difference, uh, you know, people who are don't get addicted or, or maybe people who are trying these drugs for the first time who aren't predisposed. They're wanting to just feel good, whereas maybe the, the predisposed addict is searching for um, a way out, um, a way to a way to feel like they have um, a place to fit in, to, to escape. So it's like the difference is already stemming from such a more deep place in the addict's brain when they're trying these drugs for the first time. Like, I want something to escape from this reality that I'm living now, whereas the a normal person who's maybe not predisposed to being an addict is just like, oh, I just want to try this drug to feel good and have fun. Sure. I mean, this is something I came into, uh, you know, obviously years after getting clean, but, um, you know, I think I was substituting a higher power for drugs and alcohol or mm. God or whatever you want to call it. Um, as you know, I was very anti-religious and <laughs> wait, we, wait, can, wait. we can tell a funny story about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, tell it. So, so this was how it did. You remember how old you were? I don't know. I think I was going to confirmation camp or supposed to go to confirmation. It was, it camp. was called uh camp Nawakwa <laughs> camp. Nawakwa is church camp. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, mom was forcing you to go. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> oh, I jumped off our second story roof <laughs> and started running down the street. And our dad, uh, you know, drove after me and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, just real nonchalantly, I'm going for a walk. <laughs> and it wasn't the church camp. Oh, man. Uh, I, you know, I did not have a good relationship with religion growing up. And you know that. Yeah. Um, what was I getting to on that? You were just saying how it was just your, your the the drugs and alcohol were were the substitute for your god for your kind of uh, higher power something beyond yourself. Sure, sure, absolutely. So, you know, back then I was so spiritually deficient, um, and and what I mean by that is when you, especially as a young kid or, or preteen or an early adult, um, and you know you're still vulnerable and fragile and all, and all that good stuff. Um, you know, growing up and not feeling like that there is something that's has your back, that's greater than you or a prouder, greater than yourself. That's kind of helping guide you through your life or, you know, questioning if there is an afterlife. I mean, it could get pretty scary and deep. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I said, this is something I came into after years of recovery, but I had been lacking that, you know, that, that power greater than myself. So, um, you know, I was the power and, and, and that's what it was. It was self will run riot. Uh, 
and everything that Dustin said went and, you know, left to my own devices. I did not make good choices. And, you know, I, I used, um, drugs and alcohol to, to replace the, you know, feeling of a higher self, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, you know, and I think normal people, that's not something that they're, they're struggling with. Like you said, it's having a good time, feeling good. They do feel good. I mean, I'll say that to this day. I mean, drugs feel good. Alcohol feels good. Um, but when you can't use or drink successfully, it, it starts not to feel good after a while. Yeah. When you're, when you're replacing it for your basically purpose and existence. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I feel like most people don't think about that in general. I think a lot of people kind of unconsciously, um, go through life and, and not always ask those deep questions. And maybe they do, but maybe not on a daily basis, maybe not to the extent of, you know, a 14 year old kid or a seven year old kid who's asking these questions and realizing at that early age, like, what is the purpose? Like what, like, I don't know. That's super deep. And I, I feel like that's something that not a lot of people think about. I mean, it's something I think about on a day-to-day basis. I think that my path manifests in a completely different way from yours. Obviously I didn't turn to drugs and alcohol. I turned to, to other things, you know, I turned to, um, you know, the vegan lifestyle gave me a, a sense of purpose beyond myself. Um, you know, just expressing my thoughts and my opinions and, and stuff like that. But it's just super interesting to understand why some people do. So you're saying that in the brain, like you were chemically predisposed to being an addict. Is that where your understanding is? Um, you know, I, I can't say for sure really what predetermines someone to be an addict or not an addict. Um, but you do believe it is a disease. A dis- I hate the word disease to be honest with you, because it indicates, um, it, it, you know, it, it compares it to cancer in a way. It, you know, just, I'll just use that as an example where, you know, no one asked to get cancer. It's not like we're sitting here begging for, 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 you know, to get lung disease or heart disease or something like that. Um, with addiction, you know, it, it's I did have a choice to take the first one. Um, you know, there wasn't anyone holding a gun to my head. Was I predispositioned in some way to maybe be inclined to take it? You know, sure. But um, I I just I personally hate classifying it as a disease because it it just puts it in a real medical perspective. And I just prefer to refer to it as from a spiritual perspective. Spiritual deficiency. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Because it just, you know, a disease indicates something that can be cured because Mm. some diseases can be cured. And, um, you know, addiction can't. It's a lifelong uh, remission, really, is what mm. it is. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, that's just my perspective. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. But yeah, it's just more of a mindset thing than anything yeah, else. That makes sense. So you're getting your wisdom teeth out. You get these pain pills. Um, and that's just kind of the, the downhill spiral from there. You get addicted. And what did that look like? What was next after you got that, that second bottle? Oh, man. Um, I remember specifically falling in love with opiates for sure, but you know, the, um, how we're probably talking maybe eighth or ninth grade at that point, from that point on till when I got clean at 22, it's just a bunch of bad stories, you know, kind of clumped together and 
a lot of negative consequences and it's all surrounding, you know, drug and alcohol use. Yeah. What, where did you think, uh, how long did it take before you say you hit like your rock bottom? Like what was, what was the, the timeline of progression from when you initially fell in love with opiates to, I mean, you know, you, you eventually started shooting heroin, um, in your arm with a needle, which is, I would say the most intense form of, <laughs> of doing opiates. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if there's a more intense way, but no, I think that's uh, about, that's about it. Like what, what was that progression? Like, I mean, like when did you decide, okay, like I'm going to, now I'm going to seek this even more powerful, uh, way to go about this. Sure. So it, it obviously doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, in my case, I was fortunate enough to get clean at 22 years old, which is probably fairly young, maybe maybe for back then. I mean, we're talking eight years ago that maybe now it's a little bit more normal. But, um, you know, my progression from, we'll say, age 15 to 22, it's at seven years. Um, the first couple of years still weren't terrible, I'll say. Really, from 18 to 22, those last four years was bad. I mean, it was bad the whole time. I'm sure you remember that. But yeah. from 15 to 18, you know, it's still uh, – um, the warning signs were there, but it's still fun. You know, there was, um, <laughs> I'll say fun, fun for me and my group of friends. I mean, yeah. I'm sure not everyone's <laughs> popping ecstasy pills and snorting lines of cocaine and no. raves, but, uh, you know, at, at that point in time, it seemed like harmless, innocent, you know, teenager stuff. I mean, yeah, you know, like I said, I was doing ecstasy pills and acid and mushrooms and things like that and going to raves and, going to college parties and things like that. But it just seemed because of the, the, the people that I was around, you know, it, it seemed normal once the, uh, well, I mean, even when the heroin and stuff, you know, and the pills kind of kicked in in the beginning, there were, I was still around people, you know, the last two years or so it was kind of isolation, but, um, you know, I, I mean, those people that I partied with from age 15 to 18 or whatever, are they bad people? No, a lot of them, ended up, you know, getting their shit together and, and having successful lives. But, you know, it's kind of back again to the predisposition thing or the spiritual deficiency. Um, you know, there's me and a couple people that it didn't end up very well. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so you guys are, so you guys are partying, you're having fun you're saying there's the warning signs, but like when, when was that moment that you were just like, okay, like I'm, this is it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to seek out to shoot up heroin, like with a needle. Like, I mean, that's, I feel like that's such a big jump from just like, Oh, Hey, I'm around my friends. We're all, we're popping pills. We're doing this snorting Coke ecstasy, whatever to like that. I feel like that's a big jump. Like, like, do you, do you remember the first time that you, like you decided to do that or like what you were thinking or like what, anything that like, like triggered that or were you just, again, just like seeking just like more and more. And that's just what it just like led to. I remember the first time uh, doing heroin intravenously. I was actually in Giant Eagles parking lot on Union Deposit in Harrisburg. Oh wow! But uh, just Giant, not Giant Eagle. Oh, We're okay. I'm sorry. Right I'm sorry. <laughs> We're in Pittsburgh now. But uh, you know, it 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 started off with pills, uh, which were extremely popular back then. Um, you know, I'm talking a little bit harder than Vicodin and Percocet. I mean, we're talking OxyContin and Things that were popular back in, you know, 2005 to 2011 era and things like that. Um, you know, I don't remember the first time I got introduced to heroin. I remember it had something to do with the fact that it was a lot cheaper than pills. 
Um, and I snorted it, you know, I snorted it for maybe six months and I didn't really think much of it. I'm like, okay, well, all these other people are snorting pills and it still seems kind of normal. So, you know, what's the difference? It's a little cheaper. Um, by the time I shot up for the first time, I knew that, that I had crossed the line. I didn't care that I had crossed the line, but I knew that I had crossed the line. Yeah. Uh, but you know, again, it was the same thing. It was, Hey, if you do it this way, it feels 10 times better and you don't have to use as much. Well, at the time, that seemed like a logical idea. Yeah. And, I mean, at first, it was cheap. But I remember um, you told me how much, at one point, you were spending a day for your fix. Do you remember that? Um, I'm sh- I am mean, I knew towards the end I was well over. Hell, I probably was close to $200 a day. $200 a day. Yeah. That's $1,400 a week. <laughs> That is over five thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Just, just for, I mean, that's not, it's not including your bills and everything. So you're talking about you a five thousand dollar month habit. Well, if you remember, the bills didn't get paid because the car got repossessed and everything got shut True. off. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I know, I know you resorted to, um, you know, certain things that you're not proud of to, to pay for that, and and be able to get that fix. But you know, like in your head that it, it was justified. Sure. Like you didn't care. It was just like, you felt like if you didn't have this drug, well, and at this point too, you're doing heroin. If you quit, you go through withdrawal, serious withdrawal. Right. What is that like? <laughs> uh, totally self-inflicted, but it's one of the worst feelings I feel like I've been through. Um, imagine the flu, only with severe, severe, like, bone and body ache. Um, you know, and obviously there's the mental aspect, too, which probably makes it ten times worse. But uh, it's not comfortable at all. And, you know, couple that with already having an addiction problem, um, like you mentioned. I mean, you're pretty much willing to go to any lengths to get the next one. And, of course, there's a lot of things that I've done that, you know, I'm remorseful for. And, you know, I've made amends for some things, you know, either financially or verbally. Um, there's some things I have been able to, but you know, um, hell, I probably don't even remember half the stuff I did to get drugs, honestly, yeah. but you know, it didn't matter. It, it did not matter because, um, that's all I cared about and I would do whatever it took to get that. Yeah. And I mean, eventually that led to selling drugs as well. Um, I remember there being at the time I didn't understand, I didn't know why and I didn't, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me, but there used to be a cop car right down the street, like a lot, <laughs> a lot. And I was just thought like, Oh, the cops are just in the neighborhood, but no, they were, they were watching our house and they were watching you. Yeah. I was, uh, back to the ecstasy stuff and you probably don't even remember this, but I think I was selling ecstasy and cocaine at maybe age 16, 17, something like that. Um, you know, and then, uh, I'm, probably towards the end you know there was some crack dealings and you know selling heroin too and uh as you know like there's a couple of people i've sold heroin to that i feel still terrible terrible about and um you know one of them's no longer with us and you know that's one of the consequences that i still think about it you know not on a daily basis but it comes up in my head like you know maybe what what would it would he still be here with us if you know i would have never sold him heroin yeah yeah, I mean, and it's not like 
this was kind of a, I mean, I guess in a sense you were just a small operation. You were one guy selling, but I mean, you would, you would drive to Philadelphia and, you know, describe to me the kind of places that you would go to, to get these drugs. Like they're, I mean, this, you were in it, you were, you were in it. And I mean, I, I feel like there was like, there was real serious risk involved, you know, beyond just doing the drugs for what you were doing. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I was just telling someone a story, um, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago. And of course, like none of this stuff I'm, I'm proud of, but I'm just sharing because it, you know, it's my story and I can't change it. But there was a time I got beat for drugs in Philadelphia, um, against a guy that wasn't kind of part of the normal crew. And I chased after him into one of the trap house and I had five guns, six guns, you know, pulled on me. Um, I'm not going to get into too much detail about that story, but it ended up turning out okay. Um, after, you know, talking to these guys, but, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just like 20 years old and, and you're in, you know, a trap house in, in the worst part of the city in Philadelphia and you have guns pointed to your head by a bunch of gang members. I mean, it's not a normal situation to be in yeah. by any means. I mean, at this point you had sold your soul for, you know, uh, the, the one or, or rather the need to get high. Oh, Absolutely. You know, and I think going back to the suicide thing at that point, you know, I was living my life like I didn't have one. Um, and not that I was going to do anything to intentionally kill myself, but I think I had surrendered to the fact that if it happened, it was fine. Well, I don't know if you remember this. I remember there was another incident, um, you know, uh, after you at 14 years old when, when you uh, tried to end your life for, for the attention. But later on, this, maybe you were 18, 19, 20. Um, I remember you t- purposely taking um, more pills than, than normal or, or whatever. And and I had to take you to the hospital. And, I mean, you could barely even speak the words to me, like, I need to go to the hospital. And just taking you there. And, um, and, and I remember at that point, like the nurse had asked me, you know, like, is he on anything? And I said, he's a heroin user. And, and, and at that point I remember it not even like affecting me to say that because you were in so deep and because I had seen so much and because we were living in the same house and I would see you come home and, and not off while you're eating dinner or you'd be up in your room and, you know, or I'd find a spoon on the floor or, you know, seeing your car get repossessed. And I mean, there's all these things from the outside that, that I'm seeing or seeing the cops down the street or, or hearing from mom and dad that you had gotten arrested or, you know, there, there was so much happening that it, it was just, uh, you know, it, from my perspective, like I got almost, um, um, like numb to it. Like increasingly worse things would be happening as you went down this path. But none of them surprised me. And and the way that you said you were living your life like you didn't have one. I mean, I remember towards the end, I w- waited for the phone call every single day to either hear that you were in jail or you were dead. You know, and, and that's what point it got to. And I think that some people are quick to judge um, people who get to that point. But they need to understand that there are so many factors that go into this. We were brought up in the same household by parents who were very supportive, middle class. You know, we always had food on the table. Like, we always had activities to do. Like, like this can happen to anyone. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does not, uh, does not discriminate, that's for sure. I mean, I've been in programs with doctors, 
lawyers. And I'm talking prominent people. I mean, people that are well, well respected within their communities. You know, rich, poor, white, black, Indian. It does not matter. Um, if you have it, you have it. And, you know, you're not above doing any of the same things that I've done. And, you know, if you don't believe that, more will be revealed. You know, if you're currently in this situation. Um, but, yeah, I'd say, you know, if you're you're a family member or even if you're not a family member and you're just watching this epidemic, you know, from the outside, it can uh, it can definitely happen to anyone. And, um, you know, I it's probably hard hearing, you know, normal people hearing from someone like me that's done it and been through it that um, you need to have a little bit of compassion for these people. But, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, like we kind of talked about earlier, um, I, I don't want to say it's completely, you know, no self-control whatsoever, but when you're in, you're in. And there's like a devil or a demon on your back on a daily basis guiding your whole entire life. Um, Basically saying you need that next fix. Yeah. I mean, it, it is almost damn near impossible to say no. I mean, if you could imagine the most overwhelming feeling or urge or obsession, you know, and multiply that by 10, that's what it's like to be a drug addict on a daily basis. Wow. When did you hit your rock bottom? When did you realize, okay, this is, uh, there's no going down from here. This is it. I'm well, at my worst. <laughs> there, I mean... Rock bottom is also an interesting definition because, you know, obviously there's there's people that, uh, you know, can hit just mental rock bottoms and, and, you know, just the way they're feeling on the inside is able to get them, you know, on the other side of the stone. Then there's people that have uh, external rock bottoms where you, you can clearly see from the outside that you're messing up pretty bad. And uh, the first instance was probably when I got arrested. Um for selling a gun to an undercover cop for drug money. Um, I obviously suffered consequences from that severe consequences, but, um, I continued to use for hell another year and a half after that. So, um, you know, obviously the real rock bottom, we'll get to that was probably right before mom and dad sent me away. And, um, same thing. I was using every day. I started speedballing, which for those of you who don't know, it's mixing cocaine and heroin in the same thing and shooting it up at the same time. And that's when I was spending over $200 a day. And I probably took out, uh, I want to say $20,000, $30,000 in signature loans, like unsecured debt to just buy drugs for the last month and a half. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, you want to talk about Lonely, isolated, depressed, ready to die. I can't think of any other time that I felt so much like all those different ways. It was those last probably two or three months, you know, right before I got sober. And, and I, I think the other thing that went into that, too, is that I had a long-term girlfriend who I used with that had left. Because I, I got clean in December of 2011. And she had left in, I think, in September of 2011. Does it sound about right? Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, probably about September. But when she left, it was like, you know, devastating. Because that, that was the last person I had left that would still mess with me. I mean, no one... <laughs> yeah. You know it's bad when, you know, fellow drug addicts don't even want to mess with you anymore. And, and that's what it came to. 
Well, I mean, you know, the girl that you were with, I remember, you know, she OD'd and almost died. And she, she did, yeah, she did die. And, and that, that was another, she did die. She, yeah. I mean, that, that, they like resuscitated, resuscitated her. Yeah. I mean, that was, that you would think that would be another rock bottom situation. That was, I want to say that was even before I got arrested. Wow. Um, so like even then, even even the the death, you know what should have been the death. You know, luckily she she did get revived, but the death of the your significant other wasn't enough to stop you from using heroin. No, that's how powerful it is. And, and you know what? And it wasn't enough to stop her either because we used the next day. I I personally used that night because of course I had to cope. I had to cope with the traumatic experience I just had and. What was my only coping mechanism? It was drugs. Right. But she was full blown. Um, you know, luckily she lived, oh man, maybe like three minutes away from a hospital because, uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Narcan was, uh, was a thing then either. Yeah. Yeah. She, they gave her Narcan. Oh, they did. Oh, okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't as like widely available. Maybe no, That's, you weren't going to call the ambulance and have Narcan in the, I mean, it was at the hospital, but yeah. I drove her to the hospital. She's completely blue, had no pulse, and they, you know, I mean, it was a 100% resuscitation, so. Wow. It was a bad situation. And and that is, the sad thing is that's not the first time that's happened. With her it was, but that's not the first time that's happened with me. Um, you know, we it happened to someone else, and it was the same exact situation. And you think it would scare the shit out of you, and it doesn't. It just doesn't, you know. It's that powerful. It's that powerful. That's so crazy. I mean, I've lost, you know, two friends to heroin overdoses and I just, I hear about them all the time. It's uh, such a common thing and it's, it's so terrible. And I mean, what do you equate your, your getting clean to? Do you, do you feel like, uh, do you feel like you were just granted luck or do you feel like there was a purpose? Um, you know, maybe a little bit of both because it's a, you know, sometimes, uh, not that I have the thoughts all the time, but sometimes you think like, why me? Why not someone else? Because, you know, the, the thing is that everything that I've done since sobriety, anyone else that's out there using is capable of doing the exact same thing. So why some people die over, you know, others, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's in God's hands, I guess. Yeah. But, um, you know, the one thing I do know is that since I've been given this opportunity, I don't want to waste it. Mm. Definitely don't want to waste it. That's 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 funny you say that because there's a pretty popular speech that's online from uh, Angelina Jolie and she talks about why she she's not sure why she was given the life that she was of you know this fame and the money and 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 everything she's accomplished while others are suffering so much but you know she said that she's not gonna let it be wasted she's going to use her platform to help those people so I mean I think that's the perfect way to look at it and you know, from the kind of recovery community that I've seen, most other recovering addicts feel the same way because they've gone through the same experience and understand how powerful it is. And, you know, generally want to help other people who are going through the same thing because, I mean, I, I can't even begin to, to fathom. I mean, obviously I saw it from my perspective, but, um, I can't even begin to fathom what the feeling was actually like, but, you know, I can just thank whatever higher power, whatever luck there is, that you are still here. Um, and it certainly was not an easy journey. Um, you know, let me, let me, uh, I'm, I'm 
just kind of transition into your your getting clean story here. But what was, do you feel like you were ready to get clean when it happened? Because basically we were coming out to Pittsburgh to visit family and we just planned to kind of have an intervention and then leave you with um, our cousins who are, who basically ran these programs, you know, like were you ready at that time and were you willing to like seek out or, or do you still think that that, that there was some other reason for success or you were kind of forced, forced to do it? Uh, well, I mean, was I ready at the time? I guess in hindsight, sure. Did I want to be there? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I share with everyone that my first six months to a year in sobriety, I was pretty miserable. Um, miserable does not mean though that my life wasn't better because, because a, a day without drugs and alcohol was definitely better. But, uh, you know, I think some people come into a 12 step program and, start to feel good right away. And that's great. And other people struggle. Um, and that's great too, because there's other people behind me on the path. They're going to struggle and they need to hear someone that, that, you know, it wasn't easy for, um, like you said, I, I more or less was forced, you know, to, to live with our cousin who was part of a group, like a recovery group and, and be part of a 12 step program and, and, and do all these things and live a life that I wasn't used to living, you know, I wasn't used to people telling me what to do and having rules and having, you know, set regulations and things like that. Um, so no, it was, it was very, very uncomfortable. Um, you tried to run away, didn't you? Yeah, I did try to run away. <laughs> yep. I actually, uh, there was a, there was a guy, you know, we had this thing where we, you know, for the first 90 days we had to hang out with someone else. Like we couldn't be alone. So we had to hang out with someone else in recovery or, or set our days up. And, uh, the guy, I, I believe he fell asleep. He had about $6 and 50 cents in change. I stole it. <laughs> Walked to the bus stop down the, uh, down the road. And my plan was to take this Fayette County bus, which, uh, Fayette County is this little tiny shit town in Southwestern Pennsylvania. I was going to take it up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then catch a bigger bus from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to our hometown of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and go back to your old ways or, Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, wouldn't you believe I missed that bus by two minutes? Wow. Yeah. And I always like to say that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. It's a good way to put it. I mean, there has to be some, some form of, of intervention there. I mean, that's just too, too much of a coincidence, but now do I believe that was luck? Absolutely not. I believe that that was, uh, you know, a higher power, a higher power working in my life, giving you the nudge. Yep, giving me the nudge, um, and there have been plenty of nudges, you know, over the years, but way more nudges in the beginning for sure. Um, you know, I struggle with the same things that I did as a kid. You know, I didn't believe that there was a God in my life. I didn't believe that there could be a God in my life. Uh, there were still many questions and many theories, and um, you know, I, I think the biggest thing for me was uh, time takes time. And that I had to unravel uh, years and years of wrongdoing and guilt and shame. And uh, the other reality is I was without a mood in my altering chemical for 12, for 10 years. So to be 100% stone cold sober for the first time and since I was a pre, you know, adolescent more or less, um, there's a lot of shit to hit you at one time. Yeah. And it's a lot. You got to deal with it all at once. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like for the first time in my life, I was dealing with feelings and emotions that uh, I had to cope with in a different way. 
And, um, you know, people were showing me the different way and teaching me the the different way. Uh, it just took time to, to make it all work and, and for it to all to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I remember dropping you off and I, I think that, uh, part of you knew because I think you packed like an extra coat and extra boots or something like, Maybe that was another like divine nudge or something that was just kind of like giving you like a, I want to say right. I always did that, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe, but yeah, I mean, we sat you down and and we just basically said like, hey, this is how your your drug use is affecting um, not only yourself but affecting us, and it's gotten to the point now where you know you're destroying our lives, and whether you agree with it or not, you decided to uh, go with our cousins and join a twelve step program, and that was. Coming up on your your clean dates in two days. Yes, it is. Yeah, so that was coming. This would be eight years. Eight years, yeah. Yeah. So what was that? Um, you know, obviously the the beginning was a struggle, but you know, over time, what did you find in that twelve step program? Like, what what was the thing that really allowed you to? Well, first of all, how did you get over the you know the withdrawal? You you just had to deal with that. Oh yeah, it was a hundred percent cold turkey. Yeah, so you just you just de- you just dealt, you just like ate it, you just like had to just go through it. You know what? I wouldn't have it any other way because uh, that, that was the one thing I told myself, you know, a lot in the beginning is that I don't ever want to have to go through that again. Yeah. Um. It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And then after that, you basically start going to meetings every day, twelve step program. Yeah, meetings every day from day one. Um, sick, not sick, didn't matter. Sleep, no sleep, didn't matter. Um, you know, having a sponsor, talking to on a daily basis, hanging out with guys in recovery constantly, um, trying to help, trying to help out, whether it was helping our cousin out around the house or helping set up for a meeting or setting up the coffee or, you know, whatever. Um, kind of going back to, like, giving that purpose. That was, like, establishing the very, very, very small purpose right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, because you had nothing. Your car had gotten repossessed. All your the the banks were like all the banks were looking for you for all this money you had taken out. Um, credit was shot. Like you you had nothing. You had maybe I had thirty dollars and two packs of cigarettes to my name at that point, and I was forty five thousand dollars in debt. Wow. Yeah. All from drugs. All from drugs. Forty five grand. I mean, that's the college education at like a decent <laughs> school. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny now. It wasn't obviously wasn't funny right. then, but uh, yeah, you know. Um, I mean, what? I mean, so I mean, just like a twelve step program, be around guys and other people holding you accountable. I mean, you know, you described to me how intense that feeling was to want to use. Like, how did you stay clean? Like, it literally just came down to that. Just like other people holding you accountable and literally making sure that you don't do something stupid. Like, you know, how do you? Once you go through that withdrawal, like how do you how do you fight that feeling of 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 wanting to use of previously having sold your soul for your next high, and now all of a sudden you're you're staying clean? Like I, can you describe a little bit more, just like how that's possible? I mean, all those things you mentioned, or you know, are obviously part of it. Uh, but you know, the biggest part is kind of going back to the spiritual thing. So if I have a spiritual or mental deficiency, and that's the reason why I use drugs and alcohol. Then I have to replace that with a you know spiritual or, or mental uh, uh, boost or what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, uh, 
I, I, I think I know what you're, what you're trying to say, but I can't think of it either. Well, you guys get what we mean. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it had to be replaced with something. And um, I had to build some type of relationship with a God of my understanding is really what it came down to. And I had to ask that God of my understanding to remove my obsession to use drugs and alcohol. And if I wasn't willing to do that, it was not going to be removed. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to believe that there was something greater than me that could restore me to sanity, which is, you know, part of one of the steps in the 12 step program. Um, you know, which I don't want to get into too much detail about the steps and stuff like that, just because I want to respect the individual programs, uh, anonymity and things like that. But, um, you know, there's pretty much 12 governing principles that are part of the 12 step program. And, you know, the first couple ones are kind of, um, you know, coming to believe that that a power greater than yourself could, could make you right again and being willing to turn over your will to that power. Um, and in the beginning, maybe it's not God, you know, maybe it's someone in the program, maybe it's your sponsor, you know, maybe it's a book in your living room, you know, something has to be bigger than you and you have to be willing to give yourself to it. Um, and you have to be willing to to give up control, you know, let go of the reins. Um, you know, the, my sponsor said to me in the beginning is I, I can't mess up your life any worse than you already have. So why don't you just give it a shot? And you know, it made sense. Um, I didn't see how he could. So, you know, I did what, what these guys told me to do and, and started working these steps and, and, and started building a relationship with God and the obsession removed and, um, you know, good things started to happen from there. So it was really a shift in mindset and perspective. Oh, I mean, I, I think the whole thing, I mean, that's that's the fundamental, you know, there, there's two main parts, you know, in my understanding there's the fellowship and then there's the program. So the fellowship would be, you know, obviously my fellow peers and the 12 step rooms who are helping guide me through the program and giving me guidance and providing support and providing friendship. And, you know, so there's, there's that part of it. Then there's the program part of it, which is more of the internal thing where I'm applying these principles to my life on a daily basis. I continue to apply these principles to my life on a daily basis and my life gets better. And that, there's actually an even, you know, section where they talk about the promises of, the, of these programs and how these promises will start to come true the more you fulfill these steps in your life. Do you feel like you're, the promises that you talked about or, or rather read about uh, came true in your life? Oh, absolutely. Tenfold. Tenfold yeah. for sure. Um, it's hard to believe the life that I'm living now when you take it in perspective what it was like you know, almost eight years ago. Yeah. I mean, you know, now you're, you're married, you're on your second house, you have your own (laughs) business, flipping houses. You got a cute little dog named Daisy. (laughs) (laughs) I had to shout out Daisy on the podcast. We love her. You know, so now it's, now your life is, is very structured. And I mean, obviously this has been a journey over the last eight years, but I mean, it's a complete turnaround and it's it's a testament to how we can evolve as humans, how we can change and how a lot of things that we're dealing with in life stem from these deep rooted problems. We tend to focus our problems on singularity, on single events, single things, single causes. You see it with politics all the time. 
when in reality the cause is much deeper than that it's it's really an internal struggle with like you described it, a spiritual deficiency or something similar uh, where it stems from and so you know it's hard to unravel that when you've built all these layers and all these bad habits and bad decisions and everything on top of that and so you feel like it has to be one of these but under it all is that underlying cause and from my perspective i feel like as long as you have a will and a desire to actually face that underlying problem no matter how hard it is then you have a chance to turn your life around absolutely and i think these these principles like you were kind of hinting at apply to anything um I, I mean, I'm a big believer in, I guess we'll call it behavior modification. But really what I mean by that is that if you're putting action and effort in and, and you're, you know, you have the desire and will to change, um, it takes practice. You know, you're not going to modify your thoughts or behaviors overnight. You constantly have to be continuing to work on it, um, to grow, to be, you know, open to criticism, you know, to be able to receive support from other people Whatever it is, whether it's addiction, you know, whether it's something you're working on, um, you know, self-growth, I, I mean, anything, you know, um, I, I talk about it all the time that the, the especially with the 12 steps, the, the you know, a 12 step program, which is revolves around the 12 steps. There's a lot of normal people that could really benefit from the 12 steps. If you, you know, a lot of the 12 steps have the word drugs or alcohol in it. If you substitute that word for almost anything else, it can be applied to almost anything. Yeah. Like you were talking about politics, eating, sex, um, you know, being a shitty person. I mean, anything, you know, there's a, I, I feel like there's a big gap right now between a lot of people are turning away from religion, especially millennials. It seems like. Um, the younger generations and there's, you you know, I feel like a lot of people aren't substituting that with something else Mm. and it's no different than being a drug addict or alcoholic. Like there, there has to be something, there has to be some type of purpose beyond yourself. And and I'm not knocking atheism. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're an atheist and and, and you're cool with that and you're happy with how your life is, knock yourself out. But, um, you know, if you feel like you're struggling, you know, in my beliefs anyway, there has to be something there, um, you know, and, and the principles that I, I've kind of been talking about, you know, that are recovery based. Um, like I said, they, they really can be applied to anything. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the main difference is that when you apply it to drugs and alcohol, the severity is more intense and it's affecting people in more ways that they seek out these steps because they have nothing less left to lose. Whereas other things in life, it takes more willpower to actually consciously be aware that what you're doing is hurting you more than it's helping you. Um, I think there's obviously a big gap in that, you know, because you can obviously see that that drugs and alcohol, when they become a problem, are hurting you way more than they're helping you. But for these other things, it's 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 less intense, you know. So I mean, that goes with change uh, with anything. It's just like a matter of understanding and realizing. Um, that you're fed up to the point where the fear of changing weighs less than the fear of continuing what you're doing and running your life downward. Um, you know, that, that, that's my perspective. So 
I, I think you're I think you're right. I think the twelve steps, uh, just from what I've seen and how how you've applied them to your life, can absolutely apply to anything that you do. And it's just, I mean, it all just ties into just changing as human beings and what we're capable of and how complex the brain is, but also how adaptable it is too. Um, For sure, you know. Sure, I mean, my mindset is everything. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I'm not, you know, afraid to say I'm super, super anti-medication when it comes to anything. Um, you know, I really believe that that thoughts are are more powerful than anything on this planet. I, I mean, if if you really have, you know, your mind right, um, and you're motivated to to doing something, there's nothing stopping you but yourself. Yeah, couldn't have said it better. Where can people start? If there's somebody who's struggling, who's maybe an addict, where's the first place that they can start to, to get um, help or to get clean? Um, specifically, if you're struggling and you're an addict, I mean, you know, go online and Google AA or NA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, you know, type in AA and then the town you live in, meetings, and you'll see a meeting list pop up and... Head to the closest one to you and check it out. Um, you know, maybe you'd be surprised what you find there. That's, that's as simple as I, you know, I could say it. Got nothing to lose, right? Yeah. <laughs> Got nothing to lose, everything to gain. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what about uh, somebody who's listening to this who maybe has a family member or a friend who's struggling? What can they do to help? Because I know that's certainly a challenge um, in the sense of, you know, whoever is using needs to want to get better. You know, it's not going to happen if they don't want it. But what can somebody who who knows them do to help them in this situation? I don't have a specific experience with it, but you know I know that, that there are family member twelve uh, step programs that you can go to to receive support and guidance. Um, Al Anon is one. Um, you know, but also I, I would say that the best thing that my parents did for me was shut the door faster. Mm. And, and that sounds harsh, but um, you know the best way that you can help a, a struggling addict or alcoholic is to um, get them to their bottom faster. I don't know how else to say it. And um, sometimes that means doing very uncomfortable things that maybe don't feel like that they're, they're the right thing. But, uh, you know, the best thing that mom and dad did for me was cut me off because that's what helped accelerate, you know, the recovery process. So yeah, that's the best advice I can honestly give. It's hard because you want to help, but you also love the person. You don't want to hurt them, but you know that what you need to do to help them is to hurt them. Um, there's there's and, definitely a fine line between helping and enabling. Yeah. And I think that goes for anything. Yeah. It definitely goes for anything. Um, sometimes we have good intentions, but, uh, you know, sometimes the people that are closest to you are not the people that can help you the best. That's true. It's very true. Well, I want to say congrats on eight years coming up here in two two days. Um, very fitting for us to do this podcast now. Um, I want to thank you for for coming here and doing this because I know that you know you you don't always you're not always a big sharer in life. You know you tend to kind of keep to yourself now, which is fine. Um, and and you certainly earn that life of of you know structure and and simplicity. But you know I. I Seriously, just want to thank you for for being here, sharing the story, and I I hope this genuinely helps either somebody who's struggling through something similar that you're going through, or for somebody who knows somebody who is struggling through that. So, um, yeah. Anything else? Uh, anything else you want to add? Any last words? 
I don't think so. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. It, it's been fun. Absolutely. Well, you're my brother, so I'll talk to you in like a day. But <laughs> <laughs> if you answer my text messages, you're terrible. <laughs> Never text me back. Guys, you did it. Welcome to the other side. If you're still here listening, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sticking around to the end of the episode. Don't forget, if you're an Apple user, you can leave me a rating and review by going into the show notes and clicking the link that says leave a review here. Give me that five star and a little comment if you think I deserve it, of course. And don't forget to share this episode with a family member or a friend, somebody you think would also find value in this content. If you want to stay up to date with me and what I'm doing and have a chance to win some prizes and giveaways, go to my website, www.strengththroughcompassion.com and sign up for my newsletter. Thank you so much, guys. I will see you on the next episode. My name is JP Singer, and this is Strength Through Compassion Podcast.